www.ghostbusters.org. Welcome to Live Culture, the monthly discussion around contemporary art and cultural events on WPKN. I'm your guest host, Florian Call, taking over for Martha Willett-Lewis, because this month I'm delighted to welcome the said Martha, uh, your usual host, as the artist of our show. If you're a frequent WPKN listener, her voice may be familiar as she's the host of Live Culture, this very own show, uh, every Saturday, uh, every last Saturday of the month, uh, 11am to 12 noon, and of the musical show The Flux Capacitor, every other Thursday morning from 10am to 12. But let me introduce you properly to Martha, who's a New Heaven-based artist, uh, curator, educator, and radio presenter who has exhibited nationally and internationally. Her current and recent work includes the COVID-19 pandemic projects Quarantine Cinegram and Plants and Insects, a collaboration with artist Marion Belanger on the permanent commission of the Jenkins Wagner Laboratory at the Connecticut Agriculture Experimental Station. Martha Lewis' works is in many public and private collections and has been exhibited all over the world, including the Museum of Modern Art in Oxford, the Oxford University Botanical Garden, and in the US at the Dakota Royal Museum and the Tides Institute of Museum of Art. Martha has taught various studio art courses at Artford Health School, at the University of Hong Kong, the Art Students Leagues in New York, Short Rosemary Hall, Columbia University, and through the college seminar program at Yale University, from where she holds an MFA. She also holds a BFA from the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art. This time, Martha comes to like to show as an artist for her to talk about the new exhibition at the New Heaven Museum, The Quantum Revolution, Encrafted in New Heaven, which is at the intersection of art and science in partnership with the Yale Quantum Institute, where we are currently recording this episode. So first of all, Martha, how does it feel to be a guest <laughs> on your own show? Well, thank you for having me, Florian. This is a very strange experience for me. And I want to say that in the second half of the show, I will be doing the interviewing and we'll have a live interview. So we will go back to something less quantum and more normal. <laughs> Thank you for trusting me to, to interview you. Uh, for, for the listener, I'm a French, a French rocket scientist uh, turned uh, into a quantum science manager. And the, the idea was to try to, to bring art into, into our space. Uh, so, so I manage YQI, um, the Yale Quantum Institute, that was founded in 2014, uh, and it, we're trying to facilitate the, the research of teaching and uh, research of quantum science on the Yale campus. And the, the idea was to try to bring artists uh, to, to come in and help us uh, either disseminate the work or create some interesting piece of art. Um, and Martha, you were the first uh, artist in residence in mm -hmm. 2017. Um, can you? It was a great us? honor. It was. It was quite challenging for me and I didn't know anything about quantum science particularly. I mean I'm a consumer of popular books on science so I read about it quite a bit and a lot of my work had to do with ideas in physics but this was my first time actually going into labs and working with mathematicians and talking to people and seeing what they do on a daily basis and you know it, it was It was really exciting, and I would have these sort of mind-blowing stories told to me, and I would really had a steep learning curve trying to figure things out, but it also was quite difficult to figure out how I was going to best interface with this. Um, and one of the things that I liked about the residency was it didn't demand that I immediately make lots of work. It, you know, it, what, the idea wasn't that I would just make things that, that explained quantum physics to people. Um, I really spent a long time talking and trying things out uh, with various people. And that, that part about it I liked, that, that there was an experimental part of it on my end as well. I mean, that was the, the whole point of like, we didn't mm -hmm. want to welcome artists just to make something that what they think quantum physics is. It was right. like a true Right, it's not a PR thing. event. It's actually meant to be a real collaboration and, and to actually change the cultures in, in some way or another. Honestly. 
And so speaking of art, uh, we are a few steps away from uh, the Neven Museum, uh, where on the second floor, your art is uh, shown, and you have these beautiful pencil drawings on aluminum sheets of, of can you describe a bit what's in the show? Right. So in the show are artifacts from the labs and drawings that I made of what, what are called experiment fridges. Um, they're devices that create a very cold environment that the quantum experiments can be run in. And what started me doing it was that these are incredibly intricate, sort of chandelier-like things when they're open, full of wires and gold and copper and stainless steel. They're gleaming and beautifully made, but very intricate and elaborate. And it's sort of like you're looking into the guts of the machine. And what's fascinating about it is that it's full of hand labor, hand work, hours and hours of um, minute uh, hand work. I mean, there's no other way of saying it. Went into these things, and so when they're warm, when the when the devices are not being used, they are opened up by the researchers and repaired, and then they put the new experiments in. They uh, close it up and then get it very very cold so that the atoms slow down enough so that they can even be. A scene isn't quite the right word, but um, it felt experienced, um, mm-hmm. perceived. Um, so in the show, it's a kind of unusual show because it's a mixture of my notebook drawings from down in the lab. So I did them all live in the lab. They're not from photographs or something else like that. They're they're just direct observation drawings, um, which also seems to have something to do with the idea of being the observer down in the lab was interesting. Anyway, they're direct observation drawings. And then there are elements from the bench, the workbench, for repairing the the devices. And really extraordinarily, we have Badger, who is the first quantum experiment device to run a, a successful experiment, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, so that He's was... decommissioned. The, the, yeah, so the, the, the star of the show, um, I think Badger is trying to steal. Yeah, I think Badger can steal pretty easily. Badger is a gleaming golden copper beauty. Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a deletion fridge, and so for people who don't know, a deletion fridge is a cryogenic system that, which is capable of cooling down system to almost absolute zero. So this is, in our labs, we have these experiments uh, that need to be cooled down to try to reduce all the interference and unlock superconductivity. And so for that, uh, we, we have this system called fridges, and you will hear Martha and I talk about fridges all the time because mm-hmm. that was the, the drawing of the fridges <laughs> and all those things. Um, and so the like to give you an idea of sense of scale, uh, these the, uh, the, the, if you go to outer space, it's actually warmer than the inside of the fridge. That's kind of mind-blowing, too. Yeah. And it's also incredibly dark, so it has to be dark and cold. It's, it's probably the, the most isolated, the yeah. most cold place in the Inhospitable. Uh, yeah, and it's in New Heaven. So. <laughs> <laughs> and not only that, because there are several fridges going on at once, it exists in several places in yeah, New Haven. Like these, <laughs> these small spots of, of super cold, super dark. Oh, yeah. So I, I started drawing the fridges uh, partly because they're beautiful and interesting to look at, but also... Um, because I noticed that it was a good way to interact with the researchers, um, and I could sort of sit there and kind of start quietly asking them questions. And then I became really intrigued because it turned out that they have things like names and apparently something like personalities, partly because everybody spends so long working on them and trying to get them to function right. Um, And Badger is... How old is Badger now? Badger is... Um, Badger was built in 2008 and got decommissioned in 2019. uh, Yeah, Yeah, it was when I was around because Badger is very different looking from the ones that we have now. Badger is slimmer and smaller and was entirely custom made and gets put into a uh, special hole in the ground where... Badger gets submerged in in uh, helium and a helium uh, nitrogen. Bath. Nitrogen, yeah, excuse yeah. me, a nitrogen bath, and it was quite the affair. They, yeah, they had the researcher had to drill a hole in the floor. <laughs> yes, and then take over two floors to have the experiment run. Right, and they right. had to like dunk either one of them. So Badger was getting dunked, dunked. onto yeah. the lower level with cables and with, yeah, yeah, it was like a whole a whole process. And the uh, the brother Sunshine yes was on the other side. They would just like bring the vat up. 
to the other floor. So there was like really, they were trying to see what was the best way to. to it's do the stuff thing. of mad scientists. It, it, and now things are much more kind of standardized, and you can actually buy the house, the fridge housing from a company that makes them, and they're a lot bigger, and they run experiments, many, many more experiments in one fridge, and they break down less. So presumably, students or researchers are going to feel differently about their devices in the future. Yeah, because there, a lot of the, the nickname that the fridge had uh, came from the fact that um, there was like a lot of pain, uh, sweat, and tears. <laughs> right, going into hours of labor, uh, hours of labor. Uh, and so now that the technology has matured a little bit, and mm -hmm. so there's more and more commercial right option available to cool down these fridges. So right. the, the good news for them is that they have to spend less time uh, working on cooling down the system and like fixing the cooling Repairing system. things, right. So, and they can focus on the, the quantum experiments. The less fun for you is all the whimsical and all the, right. the fun The hand labor artist. part of it is going away, and that makes me sad. The, the part that, that has to figure things out. And I liken it to... Uh, when I was growing up, people would be spend all weekend repairing their cars, taking things apart and putting them back together. And my father in particular, was I was always helping him take the car apart and then put it back together. And there was just sort of endless tinkering to do with it. And people don't do that now, and cars are made in a way that you can't do that, right? Uh, but they're much more efficient, and I, th I think this is sort of similar to that. So I didn't plan when I started doing these drawings on either having them blown up large or making a whole series of them, um, I just wanted to draw them. And then I realized as I was doing it, it was a great way to interact with people and that they were also just really beautiful and fascinating. And it felt really special to be able to be down there um, or up there. I, I always say down there because it feels like you're in a basement. You are not in a basement. It is is on, actually on an upper floor. It just is this windowless environment that feels subterranean. You're not the only one. We had multiple people really shocked when they looked at the windows. It's like, what? We're what? on the fourth floor? <laughs> right, I know. It's a <laughs> very weird, <laughs> it's a very weird, it seems wrong. Um, anyway, I started drawing more and more of them and got a, you know, a whole collection. And that wasn't the only art project that I did at YQI. In fact, the, the really big project that I did involved turning the... Uh, building in the space at YQI into a kind of quantum experiment that we're with people as the atoms moving up through the building. Um, and that was called I'll Be Your Cubit and was part of the Festival of Arts and Ideas and was a really kind of immersive site-specific installation that I did in partnership with scientists and researchers here. Yeah, with Michelle um, Tavare and it, Stefan Krasanov. Exactly. Um, and you. Yeah. 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 Um, no, that's, that's my sneaky. Maybe it's time right. to do disclosure. Like, I am heavily, heavily involved, <laughs> involved, in, involved in all of it. Yes. Um, so, anyway, like we, st you, when you and I thought about doing this, it wasn't originally going to be at the New Haven Museum. But the New Haven Museum is a great place to have an exhibit like this, which is all about uh, industry in New Haven and things that were developed here. And this is. I think that people don't really realize that science is work. I think you think of chemists pouring things around and you know, but I think when you say quantum physics to people, they don't really realize the vast hours of hand labor and tinkering and um, you know, there's there's the mathematical work and the theoretical work and then there's the hand work and all of that kind of resonated with me as an artist as well. Um, and the New Haven Museum being a place that celebrates industry in New Haven, especially since most of the factory work and so forth, the factory work is all gone. Like, that's what the show Factory that's also up there now, which is spectacular, is kind of about, right? It's a, it's a good tie in with the show. It is, um, yeah, yeah. But then right around the corner, here we are in the physics lab working on something that will at some point become quantum computers and I think it's important for people to understand that the technology in Badger, the technology in all of the things that I'm drawing is what everybody else is going to be using to make these quantum computers. So we're going to um, take a short break uh, listening to the, the sounds of the labs because we have this uh, exciting oh, fun. Uh, this, uh, this exciting soundscape yes. in the lab. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the hissing of the uh, Yes, no, so this was a real surprise to me. I, I 
sort of expected the labs to the extent that I had a preconceived notion of it, I expected them to be very quiet and clean and people sort of silently scurrying around and playing around with their computers and things. And instead, it was like walking into a tropical jungle. It was um, full of chirps and beeps and buzzes and this kind of pulsating electronic cricket-like noise, which you will hear, uh, a little bit like the cicadas in the south of France. Uh, yep, right. like it could drive you mad. And and so that noise was all around. And then there's like a cacophony of tools and objects and things and people are running around repairing things. And it was not what I expected. It's not the stereotype. Here we go. You're listening to WPKN 89.5 FM and streaming live on WPKN.org. So we were in the lab two seconds ago. Yeah. To show you some things. So good. And one thing that um, one thing that I really liked about our project is that it's the, the notion of dumpster diving. Mm-hmm. Um, because the labs, uh, you talked about earlier on the cacophony of all the cables. Yeah. Some people, yeah. some of the journalists that came in talked about like the steampunky aspect. There's They're, like right. a lot of cables, a uh, lot of, a bit of a mess. I mean, it's, it's, a, a, it's, it's a controlled mess. Right. Because but you it's have a, so many equipments. But, um, but it really feels like a working environment. Uh, where people are in the middle of something and it's and they're getting somewhat in each other's way. There's a lot of these things going on all at the same time. So. Right, it's also a huge lab. It's one of the biggest academic group uh, in in the world. Uh, and so it's, oh, it's right? the merge okay. on it's the merge of two labs, the labs of Rob Sholkoff and Michel right. Devore. So every day there's about forty people, <laughs> yeah. forty to to fifty people running that space on that floor. And so that's, I think, where all the the cacophony comes from. So because this is the first lab, physics lab, that I've spent any time in, it's the only one I know, so I think it's the norm. Like, I just think they're all like this. Um, and I did go to some of the other ones at Yale. Uh, I mean, there's, there's uh, all the labs have a really uh, have a big fight against entropy. There's, yes. there's a lot of tool flying around, and then yeah. you have to keep and and they have spring cleaning every now and then. They're like, okay, we cleaned everything up. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. And this is you say that, but this is the spring cleaning is how we I picked up the big box of all the cavities and and cubits. Yes, yes. So I think we should talk a little bit about when I was in residence here. I started, I was being taken to the labs and in people's offices and in cardboard boxes and in cabinets in the hallway, kind of dusty cabinets with all kinds of other things, I was finding really interesting older items, things no longer used at the Quantum Institute. Um, The first piece that I found was a piece of magnetic core memory that Michel Devoray had and he started telling me about how it worked and I became really fascinated by it and it is something that has hand weaving on it and small magnets. It's a very beautiful object, but it also is fascinating scientifically. It holds its memory, and that was an idea that really grabbed me. So I cleaned it off and took it back to YQI with me, and I actually did make a work of art for the um, Citywide Open Studios at the Eli Whitney Barn, and Florian helped me. We made something called Remembering Memory, which actually used the piece of magnetic core memory. But after that, I kind of put it up as almost like a museum display item in these cases. They were at YQI. And that was also as a way of talking to researchers, communicating with them. And I knew it was a success because we had a diagram of the weaving pattern. We had the object. We had a few notes 
that we had made about, you know, made into labels about what it was. And within about half an hour of putting it in there, I saw a number of people sort of go up to it and start talking and their hands were moving around in the diagram shape. And I was like, oh, okay, this is working. And Florian and I started collecting more things to put into the shelves and kind of organize it as a little museum of YQI. And the more that that happened, the clearer it became that there were lots of uh, mix-ups in terms of timelines and stories, that it hadn't been recorded very much, and there were some really weird and extraordinary things. And they were important enough that somebody was sort of holding on to them somewhere, but they hadn't been put together, they hadn't, the, the facts on them, the storylines hadn't been. Um, so that meant what we're calling dumpster diving, which was yeah. going around. Yeah, and going that was fun, and, right? And, and <laughs> like scavenging. Stuff. And then the, the more we, the more object we had, which mm -hmm. are like the, the science science artifacts yeah. of what the, the technology was at that time. So it's starting with our first piece in the museum show is, uh, it looks like a big circle of copper with a SIM card on it. Yes. Uh, with like very crude uh, connection it's big. to the it's cable. It's really big, yeah. yeah. And then in the, the span of two decades, uh, it became like these very small, minimalistic on, on crystal substrates. And much more powerful, but also they just kind of don't, like it's like the object has disappeared and that's fascinating yeah. too. Yeah, because it's not as this big chunk, maybe like five or six centimeter right. diameter right. Uh, to something you cannot see it with the naked eyes anymore. Uh, and, and that's pretty extraordinary. And I didn't realize when I was down in the labs drawing these machines that things were changing quite so fast. Florian probably had a better sense about this. But the earliest devices like Badger were really made by hand and are, are very, very different from what we have now. And, I, and Badger was decommissioned while I was there. And the subsequent machines that I drew, all of which have very striking characteristics. They, you know, break down and get repaired millions of times and they they have a lot of wear and love evident on them. They're they're eccentrically built. Uh, those are no longer going to be they're they're old news. They're gonna be decommissioned too. But remember people started giving us boxes of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, that, yeah. yeah and that, everything and, and, and then the the, we had the boxes, we had some like bits and pieces, mm -hmm. cable and things, and then I, I got a call from uh, Luigi Frunzo, yeah. who's the uh, research sci staff scientist, at, and he was like, hey, we, we're decommissioning this this fridge. Like, and we're cutting it apart. Yeah, but do you, do you want, want to it? take, no, do you want to take photographs of it? Oh, and, that's true. And, and we're like, no, we don't want to take photographs of it. We, we, want, we the want the whole thing. thing. Uh, like, and I think people thought we were nuts. You know, um, yeah, but they were like sort of happy. They were like, "Well, it's it's going to the trash, so we might as well like if you if you take it away, you just grab everything." I have to say, to me, this seems like the most exotic kind of trash. It's this incredibly beautifully crafted, shiny brass and copper and and gold and stainless object. It gleams. It's intricate. You know, the idea of just chucking it is bizarre to me. Yeah, bizarre. but I mean, it's. We're seeing it in a different way. You're seeing mm -hmm. it as an artist trying to you work. Your work is uh, like on the humanity, like the history yeah. of science, and right? How people record history and right. like, what can you do? Right. Our job All here, about that. Yeah, yeah. And the jobs of scientists here is like the past is great. He did what it needs to do. Right. Now we have updated equipment. It's utilitarian. And yeah. 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 Because and newer is better. Yeah, because it's bigger, it's more efficient, doesn't right. break down, so that's the thing. And so the uh, the reason why we wanted to save uh, Badger in particular, it's because it famously ran the uh, the first uh, the first two qubit algorithm with superconductive qubit processor in 2009, and so this is this is maybe some technical, but yeah, it's, that's it's an it was an important breakthrough uh, at the time, and so like people are like, oh, this is something that can actually work, and so yeah. all this technology has spread in the world and, and uh, has been adopted by other academic group or tech giants, and so it was important to 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 save that that artifact. Well, and I drew Badger before Badger was completely gone. And I feel more that as an object, it's worth saving, partly for the historic reason, but also, um, you know, you're, YQI doesn't have its own history settled for itself, let alone for the rest of the world. And, and it seemed important to kind of put it together, but also 
some of the things are so mind-blowingly weird and wonderful. Like one of the things that Luigi also had, and I'm delighted that he did, was a collection of objects made by somebody named Stanley Murkowski, which were grown in his lab here at Yale. Uh, so they use a lot of crystal sl thinly sliced as substrates for the experiments. And in the past, Stanley would grow the substrates. Now you would just order them from some company. Do they grow, do they grow yeah, them? Yeah, they do the same thing, yeah. but like it's off-site. So right. the, the students and researchers don't have to, to Right. So Stanley actually blew things up periodically, and it's not easy to grow your own substrates. But one of the objects is this enormous pink sapphire. And it looks like something from a science fiction movie. It's really pretty strange looking. Yeah, I was and, worried you describe it too much because yeah. you might get censored on the radio. Yeah, no, no, I don't want to, I don't want to get there. It's, For uh, those who want to see, please come to the New Haven Museum and you can see it. But it is, um, you know, the idea that, so the, nobody knows Stanley's exact recipe or method for doing it, right? The, 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 that went when, when he died and the lab is gone and there's very few records on that. I wanted to know more about that. There's a little bit of something in a book by a professor named Werner Wolf who was very important in the physics department. Uh, so there's some information and then Luigi had some information but basically there's not a lot to go on and that was the kind of thing that really got me going, putting these things together in the cabinets and, and then and collecting the, the stories and, and the collecting the stories and then other people starting to bring us things Rob brought us a bunch of things for the cabinet Michelle came up with things so um, people who are really on the front lines of, of making the quantum computers have these things and as an artist some of the things are more compelling to me than others but I, w I don't know the history of them they have to tell us that and we have to record it right so Florian and I started doing that, and then COVID hit, and we decided to turn the whole thing into a book um, because it was interesting, all of the names and stories. And, and that's basically how I ended up with you at the New Haven Museum because it was a book for a while, and then it turned out the book would be too expensive to produce and complicated. And really what we wanted was an exhibit. Because the idea was to try, no matter how much you talk about the staff, if you don't see it in person, I think pictures yeah. don't do it justice. Uh, like Seeing it's, is it's believing. To, yeah, but it's hard to see the scale of mm -hmm. the of the whole operation in pictures, and so having the objects in front of you in a museum settings, I think, is a pretty good, uh, compelling story. Right. And, and it, it gets me to like put some purple lights on stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also the physical nature of this, I think, is really interesting. So. So the, if, if you go to the New Haven Museum, you will see my notebooks. And like I said, they were directly observed. So there we are, right in front of the machines, um, documenting and witnessing those moments. And then there's all of these really interesting things with very weird names that you don't normally get to see, but that are around all the time in the labs. Um, and the names are pretty fun because it's all, um, so they started this nomenclature like scheme where uh, inspired by Schrodinger's cat, yep. all the, all the, the dead pieces, alive cat. Yeah. All the, all the, the pieces and bits and pieces uh, have name after animals. Yeah, it's we a menagerie. Some, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a quantum zoo. We have it's like, quantum uh, zoo. we have some, some jellyfish, hippos. We have hippos, I like the hippos. snails, yep. octopus. And then, and then, uh, monsters, there's jelly hogs. We invite you to come see the show yeah. at, the, at the New Heaven Museum. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the show, The Quantum Revolution, Handcrafted in New Heaven, will be open until September 16th. Uh, and you're very welcome to come see uh, at the during the opening hours of the museum, Wednesday through Saturday. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, yeah, this, do you have a last so few words on this? Um, I just think it's a really different kind of exhibit and ha offers a lot visually, more than people might guess when they hear the word quantum science. Thank you so much for coming to your own show. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Florian. And uh, don't it's worry, listeners, uh, you will get Martha, the interviewer, uh, back in just a second.
Well, here I am back again. This is Martha Willette Lewis. I am here with you on Live Culture. And my guest today is Brana Yasky, who has just written a book called Slow Dancing with Fire. Brana, are you there? Hi. Hi, Martha. Hi. Wonderful. I'm going to adjust the sound levels a little bit. Thank you so much for being on Live Culture today. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be interviewed by what uh, New York Mag- New Yorker magazine calls the best radio station in the world. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that isn't that just so fantastic? We were yeah. so delighted with that, as you can imagine. Here, um, so I want to talk a little bit about your book and the story behind it. I'm hoping that you can kind of encapsulate what the book is about. This is your first novel. You've written a lot for a lot of different magazines. Um, but this is your first published novel. I mean, it's not a novel, first published book and it's a memoir. Um, and it's about, it's about what something that happened to you, something traumatic that happened to you. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Just give us the short. Yeah. Um, well, uh, the very, very short version is that I was literally, it's about literally being on fire. Mm Mm-hmm me literally being on fire, going through the years of arduous recovery and then rebuilding my life through art, painting, uh, uh, painting, art, love, and swimming. Swimming, I love that. And you know, it really was a kind of trial by fire because as I understand it, beforehand as an artist in the 80s, you were you know, making big paintings and going out to nightclubs and kind of living the 80s, slightly hedonistic art lifestyle. And through the process, and it's outlined in the book beautifully, um, you, you you also made mental changes about what your priorities were. I did. Um, when I, I, I was in California for 12 years and I was leading an alternative lifestyle, but also getting two degrees in art. And my second degree um, was in painting. And as I was going through art school, I I supported myself as an artist model and was um, wearing costumes and sometimes nothing Mm -hmm. and was in a lot of art shows with my own paintings and paintings of me. And I thought... I love that idea, by the way. <laughs> the the artist as both... Uh, the model as both muse and maker. Yeah, I loved it, too. Yeah, and great. I would always wear costumes that if I was sitting on the other end, I would want to be painting mm-hmm, because they mm-hmm. had a lot of reflective surfaces and folds and... Um, it was fun. I was just totally, totally immersed in everything art. And um, do you want me to tell you about my self-portrait? That was yeah, my yeah, yeah. I would, and I love the idea that that you know that that you turned modeling into a kind of art unto itself with the costumes and the theatrical nature of it. Yeah, please talk about yeah, your self-portrait. I, mean, I was in my twenty early twenties, and everything, everything I did was art. It was all art. My boyfriend, my my friend, where I live. <laughs> Your boyfriend I was live. art. <laughs> oh, he was. He yeah. was like the wizard of uh, the small town I lived in, Mill Valley, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so I did this self-portrait very, very early on, maybe my first or second painting in art school, not my first or second painting anywhere, but I studied with photorealists, and it, it was a portrait of me sitting on a sleeping bag on the sidewalk, bare-breasted, looking towards, like, leaning towards the camera with um, white rolled-up pants, roller skates, white roller skates, and huge cat-eyed white sunglasses with ice skates glued to the middle and little waltzing white figure, plastic figurines on the tips of the cat-eyes mm-hmm. with a big grin on my, on my face. And the sunglasses... And the whole setup was actually uh, staged by my boyfriend at the time because it, it was for a picture in the local paper of a um, 50s comeback. Did he make the sunglasses so, or did you? He did. He did, yeah, yeah. He did. And were you a keen roller uh, skater? 
Uh, no, he found those at the flea market. And we just <laughs> okay. Thought it was good. Um, so anyway, I, I was like instantly all over the place in um, San Francisco at my mm-hmm. art was. And I thought I have to get back to New York because that's where I'm from. And I want to make it in New York as a painter. Well, and at so the time I, that being in the New York art scene was really important, San Francisco had a art scene of its own, but it was a little bit on the insular side, whereas New York is really the international stage. Well, New York was where it was happening. Yeah. I just felt like something big was really gelling there. Mm-hmm. And San Francisco, you know, was more laid back and much more beautiful. But I lived in Marin County, which was even more beautiful. Um, so I came back to New York and... I was just incredibly lucky. It was, it was uh, 1979. My brother lived in Tribeca. I stayed with him until I found a loft in Tribeca. And then I found a gallery that showed my work uptown and was lucky enough to sell my paintings um, in the first show. So I love, it I, when pe- I love it when people talk about the 80s because it's like the world that was. You know, yeah, I just got a loft in Tribeca and then I got a gallery. And then I, <laughs> I know I was very, very lucky. And yeah. I rem- and it's in the book. And my, I remember so distinctly my brother saying to me, and now you're going to meet the man you're going to marry. And I said, marry? No, no. My, I'm married to my art. Mm-hmm. And um, I was I was just like living the life I dreamed of. It yeah. wasn't Soho. It was uptown, but. I figured Soho's to come, mm-hmm. and I went to the Mud Club and Studio 54 and art openings, and I also painted sets off-Broadway at night Great. in uh, theaters because I thought if I can't make a money, I, I can't make a living on my art, I'll join the Painters Union mm-hmm. and hopefully get in and make a living because I was trained as a, as a photorealist painter, so realism is my thing. Right. I I used um, to paint for theater, too, and I loved it because of the scale shift. Um, you have to paint so big and so broadly, and it looks so different when it's lit and then it's in action. It's just there's something really magical about it. it was I liked the kind of difference between that and studio work. And for me, the big difference was that I was working with people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was just wonderful yeah. because I love I love being alone. I love being alone writing. I love being alone painting, but I also love creating with other people. Yeah, fantastic. So t- let's cut to the the big <laughs> moment. The yeah, let's yeah, cut so, to the big moment. So, yeah, and yeah. having having like this life that is great, and I was thinking about the next painting I was going to paint. I was boiling water on the stove for my coffee and just thinking about my painting, lifted up the kettle and all of a sudden I feel something hot and the flame had attached to the bottom of my sleeve. So I, in the book, what I things I love is that you're about to start painting wearing some kind of fuzzy pink sweater and it was like chenille. chenille. Or yeah, it was chenille. chenille. And, yeah. And, uh, so you're wearing pink chenille to paint in, and that's the sleeve that catches fire. And there's something about that detail that's uh, poignant. Well, thank you. And I, so, uh, you know, here I am. I was going to roll on the floor because the floor was wood, but yeah. I, I lived alone. I was going to be alone all day. And I thought to myself, what if the floor catches on fire? So I went running out my door. It was a small loft building, um, little lofts on four floors, hoping a neighbor would hear me. And thank goodness one did and ran down and saved my life. Um, So I just wanted to read a little part of when when I um, arrived in the hospital because I, I had no idea really what was going on at that point. I was unconscious. And, um, okay, here it goes. I opened my eyes to a priest hovering over me, making the sign of the cross. He is giving me last rites. This can't be, I think. I'm Jewish. Then all I see is a white light. I feel it slightly tugging my feet toward the calmness of vanishing. It would be comfortable and very easy to surrender and slip into the void. 
yet my head fills with images that thwart the gentle slide out of my body. It is a, in a blurry bubble I see vague paintings I haven't created yet. Jake, the second man I almost married, stands smiling, holding the hand of an unfamiliar small blonde child. Jake is a fisherman in California I left years before. Who is this child? A voice crashes in my head. You're on fire, you're hot, you're unstoppable, blazing forward, a force no one can touch. I incorporate the power that could destroy me. I decide to fight for my life, focusing on the glow, on a glowing glimpse of a future. Wow. I could go on, but... Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Enough. That's that's a wonderful place to stop. It's sort of almost like you're a comet at that point. Um, I love the fact that as this is happening, you're seeing it in images. Um, I attended a talk at Fairfield University with two really wonderful photographers, Adger Cowens and Larry Silver, and they were both talking about how they they thought in images all the time. They saw images all the time and that, you know, yeah. You as an artist, you're thinking about the paintings you haven't made and you're seeing this very profound image of your fisherman ex and the strange child. Um, but the image-driven nature of it is really fascinating. Um, I, yes, I always think in images. And then when a little later, before I, um, you know, when I realized how badly I'm burned that same day, um this leads me into, you know, the whole act of creating. I can hardly breathe when the lurking fear of not knowing how my life will be takes over my mind. My breath is fast and shallow. My chest not moving. My chest not moving below my throat. In that moment, I instinctively know that the only way I can get through this is to make art of the horror, to make a film of this day, recreating it as the director, not the protagonist. With that consoling thought, I drift off. So that's really interesting because that comes back to your being both a model and a maker. Um, and I think about the, the Laura Mulvey quote, which is so famous in feminism. She was writing about cinema um, but writing about a time when women would be the, the makers, not the bearers of meaning. And that's what that reminds me of, right? Instead of being the victim, the one, um, the one being looked at the subject, you're, you're going to be the author of it. Yes. And not the subject of the gaze. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so you did, you made a film and you also started doing all kinds of, well, I'm going to let you tell it because it, it, there's swimming involved and, and art therapy and yeah. What happens next? Jump forward a little ne bit. Next, like now? Or no, no. Like, in the, like when you're recovering, you go through a, you, you started doing all kinds of different things, things that you had never I done did. before. I did. And um, the art therapy was it took me seven years to make this 11 minute film because I had to heal and learn how to do it and get the right people in place. But, um, the swimming came about two and a half years after being burned because the doctor who saved my arm, who was in the burn unit was like my guardian angel. I trusted anything she said. Um, she was, she was beautiful. She was like an amazing surgeon. If, other, the other surgeons wanted to cut my painting arm off, and she sewed it on. And after I was in physical and occupational therapy for years, an outpatient, she said, "You have to, you have to get out into the world again." Mm -hmm. And um, she had grown up going to the Hamptons. I had never been there. They just seemed like this, you know, glamorous world I had nothing right. to do with. And she said, go swim, go, go to the Hamptons and go swimming every day at 4.30, you know, late in the afternoon when the sun isn't too strong. And the water's warm. 
and the waters weren't just be out in the world. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, here I am in my early 30s, and I go out to the Hamptons with my parents in the back of their station wagon. <laughs> to find Speaking of the world that was. <laughs> yeah, and I'm looking at the back of their heads and thinking, I could be going to camp right now. It's mm-hmm. the same do, except my brother's not in the car. He's not poking <laughs> you in the back. Free air. <laughs> that was exactly it. <laughs> and and we get there and we find a, a little cottage, and this was 1983, so it was a lot more low-key there mm-hmm. then, but still pretty special. And um, we found a little cottage, and I rented out my loft in Tribeca to pay for this cottage. Now, I did not have a car, so I had a collapsible bicycle that had three speeds on it. That's good for getting it it. out into the world, too, though. Yeah, Yeah. it is. But I was very, very self-conscious because I was wearing these head-to-ankle scar compression garments. Ah, yeah. Hang on a second. Hold that thought. I just want to say that you are listening to WPKN 89.5 FM and streaming online at WPKN.org. I'm Martha Willette Lewis. I'm the host of Live Culture, and it is my great pleasure to be in conversation with the visual artist and author, um, Brana Yasky, and she is discussing her book, uh, Slow... I've just lost the title, Slow Dancing with Fire. Is that correct? Yes. I just lost it for a second there. Um, anyway, you're wearing compression garments and from head I to was, toe, so which must have been hiding. hot, too. Hot. It was super hot, and I basically hid in this cottage until it was time to go swimming. I just, you know, did art in the cottage. I did um, pastels because they didn't involve any odors like paint. Mm-hmm. And read, read an awful lot. So I'm going to read you the part of how... I become a swimmer. That's great. Yeah, please. Dressed in a long sleeve, pink and green striped leotard and long pants to protect my raw skin from the sun, I rode my collapsible bike three miles until I saw the expanse of the Blue Bay at Devon Beach. At 4.30, the sun was still high, but more muted not the blinding light of midday, a winding down light, mellow, mature, steady, not having to blast its presence, an embracing light, not a scorching one. I virtually had the bay to myself. Submerged in the water, I licked the salt off my upper lip. Each breath took in the sight of the shore, establishing a sense of security. Only in the water did I feel whole. I had to swim to feel good and had to swim long enough to get lost in the sheer pleasure of moving. My mind no longer clung to negative thoughts. It occasionally turned to concocting opportunities in my life that seemed logical while buoyant and much more complicated when I dried off. My body spiraled, flipping over and doing the backstroke watching the sky. As I swam, the water seeped into my long sleeves like weights wrapped around my arms. It was a challenge to keep moving, but one I enjoyed and was determined to meet. Lost in the timeless zone of stroking, my arms and legs rhythmically hit the water, propelling me further. I alternated between the crawl and the side stroke. For most people, a relaxing movement. For me, the intense forward thrust of my right arm targeted the contracting score band. With my head above the water, leaning on my shoulder, I gazed at the vastness of the bay and the openness of space, reflecting limitless possibilities for growth. I felt my constrictive scars loosening, my body lengthening, strengthening, elongating, emerging from the wounds, evolving into something else. That was beautiful. And I've, of course, never experienced what you've experienced, but I have been in pain and had seawater and being in the ocean feel like this restorative uh, place where, where you're right. There are all of these possibilities that present themselves all of a sudden. 
too. It's kind of reassuring, challenging, calming all at the same time. Yeah, being in a whole other world. Yeah. There's something about being supported by water, too. The buoyancy Mm -hmm. that the salt gives and the fact that you're, you're being kind of cradled by it. Definitely, definitely. I'm always interested, you know, I believe in aquatic ape theory, which is that we're, uh, we're descended from a group of, of beings that hung out on the, on the shores in the very far, in the very far past. Um, but you look at yeah. the way that everybody, no matter who they are, creative or not, everybody knows what to do with the beach automatically, you know, shell collecting and building sand castles and you know, wading in and um, there's a certain kind of visceral pleasure that that just seems instinctive about being at the ocean. It's true. It's true. The smell, Mm -hmm. everything. All of it. All of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you radically changed the kind of work that you were making. You started to do a lot of public art pieces, collaborative things, art therapy yeah. with abused children. You became part of the Gorilla Girls, the conscience of the art world. I mean, you you did all kinds of sort of more outward engaging things afterwards. Exactly. exactly. I, I mean, I because I, I realized that being, well, I started being an art therapist while I was also an outpatient. Mm-hmm. Um, doing physical and occupational therapy because it was driving me crazy. I was like, it was over a year of just fixing my body. And mm-hmm. I couldn't stand that that was the only focus in my life. Right. And, and because I was, I was so incapacitated, I had to return to live with my parents. Which must have, right, that must have been psychologically uh, quite loaded. <laughs> Well, I I left I left their home when I was 16 to go to college. Mm-hmm. And after I left and after my brother left for college, they moved to a bigger house in the same neighborhood and I had been there maybe once, let alone never lived there. Mm-hmm. And I I had to live with them for yeah. many many months. So I would get in a car every morning and be driven to St. Vincent's Hospital which no longer exists in Greenwich Village. Mm-hmm. And spend the whole day doing physical and occupational therapy. And St. Vincent's was across the street from the new school. And I thought, I've got got to do something besides this. So the new school offered a certificate in art therapy. And I brought my slides. You have to show your work. Mm -hmm. And I got in. So I started being, I, I was an art therapy student while I was also in occupational physical therapy. And then I had an internship as an art therapist while I was still a patient. And then finally, I wasn't a patient anymore, and I started getting jobs That's in great. all kinds of situations. And it, I just felt that by he- healing others and showing up and seeing other people feel better, it, it made me feel better about myself, and it made me feel less like a patient mm-hmm. and more like. I, I, I admired my physical and occupational therapist so much that they could make yeah. very, very big difference in my life. I wanted to be them at that time. I, so, I I always felt like an artist, but I wanted to I wanted to do I wanted to have the impact that they had. I think that's because, so so marvelous. So I, I we only have a couple two minutes left. Um, oh, okay. so, I, I know time flies. Um, we have a, a set of PSAs that happen in a minute, but so I want people to know where they can get a copy of slow dancing with fire. And you have a couple of events that are lined up in to launch the book. So could you please tell the, tell us those? Okay. Um, they can get, they can get slow dancing with fire at amazon.com bookshop.com through my publisher, Shanti mm-hmm. or Great. Barnes and Noble. You can order oh. it from any of these places. Or, or go, go to, to a bookstore. Book. Go to a bookstore. Yeah, go to your local bookstore and order it from there. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're ordering online, just type in my name and the title, Slow Dancing with Fire. Um, I have a few events lined up, hopefully more, but May 18th, I'll be giving a book talk and book signing at the Brotherhood Synagogue, it's just me. It's not mm-hmm. part of a service. Uh, 
Uh, okay, Kevin. so I'm going to have to cut you off here. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to post. I'm going to post this though on the Live Culture Facebook page. I will post all of the information. Um, Bronyaski, I want to thank you so much for being on Live Culture today. It's been oh, an it's absolute pleasure. pleasure. It went so fast. I know it oh, does, and w- with the PSAs. So join us next month for another edition of Live Culture, and. Support for WPKN comes from Mocha Westport presenting singer-songwriter Griffin Anthony on Saturday, April 30th at 7 p.m. Griffin Anthony's music has been described as soulful and mindful with nonlinear, character-driven narratives, organic instrumentation, and compassion. More information and tickets for in-person attendance or live streaming available at mochawestport.org. Support for WPKN comes from Save the Sound, leading environmental action in our region. From Connecticut's Litchfield Hills to Long Island's North Shore, Save the Sound partners with individuals and communities to fight climate change, save endangered lands, protect the sound and its rivers, and work with nature to restore ecosystems. More information on how to get involved is at savethesound.org. WPKN has partnered with radio station WWOZ in New Orleans to simulcast their live broadcasts direct from the 2022 New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Listen in real time to this incredibly diverse celebration of live music this Saturday from 1 to 4 p.m. and Sunday, May 1st and 8th from 2 to 5 p.m. without needing to buy a ticket. Just tune in to WPKN and enjoy the music New Orleans style. On the next Alternative Radio, Ray McGovern on the hidden history of U.S., Ukraine, and Russia relations. That's Alternative Radio, Monday mornings at 6 on WPKN. 89.5 FM Independent Community Radio. The next documentary in the WPKN Environmental Film Series is the controversially provocative and shocking film Seaspiracy. Beautifully shot for the screen by filmmaker Ali Tabrizi, Seaspiracy examines mankind's devastating impact on the species in our planet's oceans, where overfishing has wiped out much of the world's fish. Come down to the Bijou Theater in Bridgeport May 11th at 7 p.m. for Seaspiracy. It's food for thought, and it just might change the way you look at fish and fishing. The best art is public art. The City of Bridgeport and the Downtown Special Services District are calling for artists to color it in this summer, 2022. The Color It In Public Art Project aspires to activate different sites as a means to service and enhance the experience of residents, workers, and visitors to downtown Bridgeport. We seek artists from all backgrounds and experience. Artists whose work can create multifunctional spaces that encourage lingering time in the downtown district and at local business. We're open to all ideas, to all formats, and media that you might propose. Paintings, drawings, prints, panels, photographs, projected images, lighted, interactive, immersive, three-dimensional, animated, sculpted, electronic, and web-based, even performance-based art. For more information about the Colored In Public Art Project, email hello at infobridgeport.com or call us at 203-908-3622. My name is Gary Anderson, and I am a volunteer tutor at Mercy Learning Center in Bridgeport. Mercy Learning Center is a not-for-profit that provides basic literacy and life skills training to low-income women using a holistic approach within a supportive environment. Since 1987, Mercy Learning Center has educated and empowered over 12,000 women. We provide part-time tutoring, full-time classroom instruction, technology education, employment and life skills training, as well as family literacy programs. All of our programs and services are free, thanks to the generous support of individuals, businesses, and community organizations. We are able to provide these services with the assistance of part-time volunteers like myself, who believe in the center's mission statement, Educate a woman, educate a family. Volunteering at Mercy Learning Center is a fulfilling way of giving back to the community. And if you'd like more information about volunteer opportunities at Mercy Learning Center, you can find us online at www.mercylearningcenter.org. Visits can also be arranged by phone at 203-334-6699. 
Hi, this is Justin Shea, host of JMS Jams, heard every fourth Wednesday of the month, here on WPKN Bridgeport, 89.5 FM, independent community radio, streaming online 